Today we'll be looking at Matthew 18, last part of Matthew 18, starting in verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter. I don't know if you've heard of these famous pollsters, but uh, they're quite famous. Uh, George Gallup Sr. and his son, uh, junior, his, his junior, Gallup Jr. Anyway, they studied the habits and the preferences of people in the United States, and you say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, uh, you're part of the Western world, so the, what, what I'm about to say is you're going to find uh, similarities even here in New Zealand. Anyway, they, they've been studying uh, people since the 1930s. And uh, Junior, George Gallup Jr., wrote a book called The People's Religion. He concluded in that book that we are among the loneliest people on earth. Even in the midst of, you know, so many people today uh, have Facebook and all sorts of social media and so forth, and even little girls. Uh, I even heard of a little girl last week. She was only like, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. She's got like nearly 2,000 friends on Facebook. People think they, they have all these great relationships and all these friends just because of stuff like that. When in reality, a lot of people are quite lonely. Anyway, he cited a variety of contributing factors for this loneliness, uh, one of those being Western individualism. We love our individualism. And what has happened is, he said, it, it's actually turned into isolationism. So even somebody, for example, on Facebook, who could have, you know, theoretically tens of thousands of friends, is very isolated. Those aren't really friends. And what ex- what's exasperated that is the urbanization. So, I mean, you could live in some place like, I don't know, London or Mexico City, you know, t- surrounded by 20 million people and feel very alone. Technology has exasperated the problem and contributed to our loneliness and consumerism. Those are four things that he's mentioned. Well, that truth that the Gallops have pointed out, uh, it points out something many of us don't like to admit. We don't like to admit that we need each other. By the way, that's the way God designed it. God designed the church. It's something that Christ loves. It's something He has designed to help us so that we're not isolated and we're not alone. But we pride ourselves a lot of times in our ability to take care of ourselves and uh, we don't like it if, if uh, you know, if we have to come to the point where we actually have to ask somebody to help us. Our false humility kicks in at that point. Our pride is what it is. If we're not willing to admit we need help. And, it, by the way, that's not the way God created us to be. I remind you that in the beginning... Uh, that uh, God didn't make us that way. Community is actually an important element of God's creation. In fact, when God made Adam, Adam realized, even when he was still perfect, by the way, Adam realized he was alone. There was something wrong. As he was counting, or sorry, not counting, he's naming the animals, and he's, you know, he's seeing Mr. and Mrs. Lion, and Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, and Mr. and Mrs. Monkey, and they're all Mr. and Mrs. walking, and he's naming them. And he's like, wait a minute, where's Mrs. Adam here? Uh, he's, there's something wrong with this picture. Even as a perfect man, he recognized that. And so, of course, God knew that. And that's the only part of God's creation, by the way, in Genesis, where God says, that's not good. Everything else he said it was good, but Adam being alone, not good. And so God made Adam a companion. He gave him Eve. God created him this companion, the perfect companion. And so it's never been good since that time for human beings to be alone. That's the way God designed it. As we come to Matthew 18, we've been discussing community. Jesus has been talking about community throughout this whole chapter. And with the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, community is, is something that Jesus is revising. Jesus' message in this community discourse provides a prescription for reversing, if you will, the destructive effects of sin on human relationships. It's a way to reverse the stuff that the Gallops wrote about in their book, The People's Religion. 
And so in this discourse, Jesus focuses on specific issues that are destroying community. You and I need community. And what's destroying that? Well, primarily sin, of course, which is why we looked at last week. We need church discipline. We need it. We need the formative discipline, and we also, if, if that doesn't work, we need corrective discipline. Sin destroys community. And so today we're, we're going to look at, carry on with, with this community discourse from Jesus. We're going to look at the destructive issue of retribution. And by retribution, I mean this idea of vengeance. Well, hey, you know, if, if somebody sins against me in the church, uh, well, you know, do I really need to forgive that person? Do I really need to forgive that person? I mean, imagine something destructive happened in our church where, I don't know, we say there was adultery. Should the wife forgive her husband for that? Should she? Jesus addresses that in this parable we're going to look at here. So the quality that's needed that Jesus is going to address to overcome retribution is mercy and forgiveness. So here's, here's my theme for today. Here is the theme coming from our passage, and I've put it on a screen here for you. It is this. Once we've experienced God's merciful forgiveness, then it's mandatory, it, it's obligatory. It's something we have to do. We, we must show that same forgiveness to other people that God shows to us. And if we don't, there's some serious judgment coming our way. Well, before we get into talking about mercy and forgiveness, uh, we probably need to clear up a few things, because unfortunately there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to forgiveness. So let me tell you, first of all, what forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. In fact, it's an act of your will. Forgiveness involves a series of decisions on your part, And, and of course the first uh, of, of which is you, you actually have to call on God to change your heart. So let, let's say, um, let's, let's say something happened in our church where we had to go to the corrective discipline stage, the last stage of, of church discipline. And it might, it, it could even be between someone within your family. I mean, we got people who are related here. What are you going to do if we have to go to that last stage and actually cast the person excommunicate that person out of the church. Someone in your own family. Heaven forbid that should happen, but those sort of things can happen. What do we do with those people? I mean, that's hard to deal with. The person's injured you internally. What do you do? Well, the only way you're going to be able to truly forgive that person is God's going to have to change your heart. And God calls us to make these decisions regardless of our feelings regardless if you even don't even want to forgive you have to god calls you to these decisions can lead to remarkable changes in our feelings though okay so if you you know just do it and amazingly enough sometimes god actually will change your feelings in the process but number two forgiveness is not forgetting it's not forgetting some people that's what they think you have to remember, forgetting is actually something that's passive. Whereas forgiving is something that's an active process. It actually involves a conscious choice. It's a deliberate course of action. Fortunately, when we decide to forgive somebody, and we, then we stop dwelling on whatever that sin or offense is, a lot of times painful memories will fade. It might take a while, but they will fade. Number three, forgiveness is not excusing. What excusing does is it says, you know, hey, what you did was not really sin. You know, it's okay. You know, somebody comes and they, they, they confess their sin to you and they ask forgiveness. And sometimes we, we want to say, oh, it's not a big deal. That's excusing. And if, and if, it's, if it is a sin issue, you don't want to do that because that's not really forgiveness. And so you have to keep in mind the very fact that forgiveness is needed and granted it is actually indicate indicating then that what that person did was wrong and it's inexcusable. So that's what forgiveness is not. And say, okay, then show me what forgiveness is. All right, before we get into this 
parable here, we need to understand what forgiveness is. Number one, forgiveness, as I've said, is a decision. It's a decision. Now, I once heard a joke that described a frequent failure in forgiving. So maybe this will help you understand this. There was a woman one day who who came to her pastor, and she was asking her pastor for some advice on improving her marriage. Her, Her marriage wasn't, she knew it wasn't exactly right. And so when the pastor asked her what her greatest complaint was, she replied, every time we get in a fight, my husband gets historical. When her pastor said, you you must mean hysterical, right? You mean hysterical. She responded, I mean exactly what I said. He keeps a mental record of everything I've done wrong, and whenever he's mad, I get a history lesson. That's what I meant by he gets historical. Well, hopefully you get the point. Sadly, tragically, this scenario is all too common, even in our own relationships, possibly. Many people keep a record of wrongs, and they they bring them up again and again. In fact, I even heard uh, when I was at a Bible conference uh, a few years ago, uh, the, the man was actually counseling this husband and wife, and she came in, no lie, she came in with a stack of paper. She could have written a couple books. She had a list of wrongs. I mean, it must have been about 200 pages single, single typed of, of wrongs that she had been keeping. And she just threw them on the desk. Well, that's not helpful. Many, many people are like that. They keep this, this record of wrongs and then they'll bring them up. Well, that pattern is not helpful. It, in fact, it destroys relationships. It deprives relationships of peace, freedom. And, and the way you're going to get peace and freedom is, is only through forgiveness. So what is forgiveness? Number two, forgiveness means to release him or her from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. I'm actually getting that from, from the Greek word we find in our text. In Matthew 18, verse 27, you'll see the word forgive. Uh, I looked that word up in, in the Greek dictionary. Here's, here's what that, that Greek word for forgive means this. I think I put it up there, didn't I? It means to release a person from the obligation of repaying what is owed. It means to cancel a debt, to forgive a debt. And that's exactly the word that Jesus is using here in Matthew 18, verse 27. Number three, forgiveness, you need to understand, can be costly. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And so when when someone sins, what happens is it, it actually creates a debt. So you think of money. Think of a bank account, if you will, if that helps you in this situation. Think of somebody... Uh, sinning against you, and then immediately there's this huge debt. Somebody has to pay the debt. Somebody has to pay the debt. The question is, are you going to pay the debt, or is somebody else going to pay the debt? Now, most of that debt is, of course, owed to God. Even David admitted that in Psalm 51. I, I sinned against God. That's who you're primarily sinning against. But In His mercy, we need to understand that the Father, what He did is He sent His Son. Jesus Christ paid the debt when He died on the cross. He paid the debt for everybody who who puts their trust in Him. But if somebody sins against you, part of that debt is also owed to you. They've sinned against you. Therefore, there is a debt to pay. And, And that means you have a choice to make. You can either take the payments on the debt, or you can make payments. Two choices you can make. You can take payments or make payments. Let me explain. I found Ken Sand's book quite helpful, his book, The Peacemaker, and he asked this question, well, how can you take payments on a debt from others' sin? How can you do that? Well, Ken Sand says this. Here's what he says. You can do that by withholding forgiveness, by dwelling on the wrong, you can uh, by being cold and aloof, by giving up on the relationship, by inflicting emotional pain, by gossiping, by lashing back, or by seeking re- revenge against the one you hurt or the one who hurt you. Sorry. So those are all various ways that you could take payment on the debt from other sin. 
And of course, I hope you you can look at all of that, that list there and say, that's not a good way to handle the problem, is it? It's not the correct way. It's not the way that God wants you to deal with it. Now, of course, those actions that you see there, they can provide a, a perverse pleasure for the moment. But are they really going to help in the long run? The answer is no. In fact, in the long run, it's actually going to bring a very high price in the long run. Somebody once said this, that unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. People destroy themselves through unforgiveness. It's not helpful at all. And so this is clearly not a good option for us. (laughs) And we need to think about the second option. So how can you make payments on the debt of others' sin? How can you make payments? Well, you need to understand, sometimes God will enable you to do that through one easy payment. Sometimes it can be it can take place immediately, quickly. It's, it's all dealt with at that very moment. Unlike a lot of the TV advertisements. You, know, you, ever, you ever watch that shopping channel? It's quite humorous to watch that, actually. You know, just six monthly installments of only $39.99. Yep, and, and, if, and if you do it today, we'll throw in a free set of knives, right? Well, that doesn't... Sometimes that, that happens in forgiveness, but... It's better if, you know, you just pay the thing all in one lump sum. And so when there's been a deep wrong, the debt it creates is not always paid at once. Not always paid at once. If you've ever experienced some deep pain in your own life, you know that that's often the case in those deep pains. I know in my own life, there's uh, even, even this past week, something came up where I had to in my mind, I had to I had to think for a few moments about some deep pain where people had had slandered me, and as a result of that, my wife and I we lost a lifetime worth of income, and our our retirement was blown out the window. Relationships destroyed. We had to find a new church. I mean, the the, the list of things. I mean, it's, I'm still recovering. I'm still recovering from that. I may never fully recover, but I, I had to—I had to ask myself as I was as I was even preparing this sermon: Have I really forgiven the people who slandered me? There's such deep hurt there. Well, there's one guy I, I can think of who who was a part part of that. He to this day he's one of my best friends. Uh, so so by by God's grace, I've I've been able to forgive at least that individual, but it's only by God's grace. Well, here's what Ken Sand says in, in The Peacemaker. He says, You may need to bear effects of the other person's sin over a long period of time. This may involve, involve fighting against painful memories, speaking gracious words when you really want to say something hurtful. Working to tear down walls and be vulnerable when you still feel little trust or even enduring the consequences of a material or physical injury that the other person is unable or unwilling to repair, end quote. You know, this. remember, the context is church discipline here. We're talking about this community discourse. So what do you do when someone injures you internally within the congregation, maybe even somebody in your own family who needs, to, who needs church discipline? What do you do with that individual? Well, there's some helpful things. Uh, you got to make payments on the debt. Somebody's got to pay. And those are some ways to do that. So, my friend, understand this. Forgiveness can be extremely costly. But I firmly believe if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe in the person and the work of Christ, you have more than enough to make these payments. You have God's grace to make these payments. It is possible. So let's come to our text here in Matthew 18, this last part of this community discourse. And the first part we see here, the need for forgiveness. The need for forgiveness. Look at verse 21. So remember, this is coming right off, right after this passage on church discipline. 
Verse 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. We'll stop there for the moment. Again, notice Peter's the spokesman for the group here, as he, as he has been for quite some time now. He's speaking for the twelve, and his question could easily have sprung out of Jesus' teaching on church discipline here. That's the context. Peter may have wondered, hey, you know, how long should I forgive uh, my sinning brother before, you know, I, I cast him out of the church, before I'm totally done with this dude? You know, especially if this guy sins against me personally, what do I do with him? Well, according to some Jews, a brother was forgiven three times for the same offense. That, that was the teaching of the rabbis of, of Peter and Jesus' day. Three times, that's all he gets. And, and, and you know, the fourth offense, nope, done. No, no more forgiving for that guy. That was the general teaching of the day. So Peter thought, notice he doesn't say three here. Peter's being generous when he says seven. <laughs> he's being really generous. So he's obviously been listening to Jesus' teaching. He, he's catching on a little bit here. But Jesus showed that Peter was thinking human thoughts. He's not, he's not thinking the thoughts of God. And by the way, if you have a different translation from the one I just read from, you notice there. There, there is some debate over whether Jesus' response should actually read 70 times 7 or 77. The exact number is not important, okay? Let me just state that, all right? I, I, I don't really want to get into the debate, is it 490 or is it 77? Either way, does it really matter? The point is, you're not supposed to sit there and start keeping a list of, you know, Oh boy, you're up to 491, dude. You're going to lay into you now. That's not the point. The numbers involved are presented just are emphasizing something. And you say, well, what is the point? That Jesus is saying this. You got to keep on forgiving endlessly. Endlessly. You don't carry a grudge. You don't make a list of wrongs. And you don't keep bringing it up. That's the point. And to kind of emphasize the point, Jesus starts into this parable of the unmerciful servant. Let's look at the parable of the unmerciful servant, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Let's move on. Verse 25, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children in all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and <clears throat> reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And his anger, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's back up to verse 23. Notice the first word in verse 23 is the word therefore. 
Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, you've got to ask, what is it there for? Well, if you notice that, that's Jesus' way of introducing us to the parable here that, that's illustrating the, par- or the, the principle. It's illustrating the principle that Jesus mentions in, in verse 22. He's saying you are to forgive endlessly. And so the parable's illustrating this. Well, let me set the scene for you by introducing the characters. All right, in this parable, of course, we have a king. We have servants. Like any normal king, they have servants and lots of them. And, and the, these people in this parable represent something. The king represents God and the servants are representing fellow believers. So Jesus the great master teacher is, is using this story to illustrate something. He's illustrating what forgiveness looks like, or what it should look like. So in this story, one of the king's servants, he owes this massive amount of debt. No servant could ever hope to repay this amount in, in a thousand lifetimes, by the way. And in fact, Jesus comes up with such a huge amount that everybody who would have been listening to him would have been like, like, that's impossible. I mean, that's that's like the, the national debt of the whole United States. Nobody could ever pay that. And by the way, I looked up the national debt of New Zealand. In fact, I found this website. <clears throat> you, should, you should go and look at it. It's keeping track of New Zealand's national debt. And the last three numbers were clicking over everything, every single second. I mean, just hundreds, hundreds of dollars. Oh, it's, it's scary. But anyway, so it's keeping track somehow. So the idea is, is, is think of some huge, massive debt that not even an entire country can, can, can repay. And this one guy owes this. In fact, if you look at that, a talent was the equivalent of about 20 years' wages. One talent is 20 years' wages. You just put that in your own whatever category fits for you. All right? So we got 20 years' wages times 10,000. Can, can anybody ever repay that? Not even Bill Gates can do that. Right? This is impossible. So if you multiply 20 years by 10,000 talents, you're getting 200,000 years worth of wages. So if you live to be 200,000 years old, it's still not enough. Right? You don't even have anything to live off. That's how huge this debt is. So Jesus purposely picking something that everybody's going to be like, man, that's impossible. Well, how did the king's servant respond? <laughs> like any desperate man's going to respond, right? He falls on his knees before the king. He, he's displaying humility. Obviously, he's showing desperation. He's casting himself on, on the mercy of the master. The servant's promise to pay back everything is, by the way, is, is unrealistic here. There is no possible way this guy, even if he gets all the debt back from everybody that owes him, there's no way he can pay this. It's totally unrealistic. These are obviously the words from from a very desperate man. His promise might be compared, if you will, to some factory worker in New Zealand pledging to pay off the national debt of New Zealand. It's just never going to happen. Never going to happen. He can't even pay off the interest that's accruing on it. It, it, it just can't be done. And so the king's mercy here is given greater emphasis by this ridiculous pledge that's being made. So Jesus is, is glorifying the Father as he tells this story. Now it's important to keep in mind here that we're not dealing with salvation. That, that is not what this is about. This is about family forgiveness. Remember, this is the whole discourse on community. This deals with sin that's committed since somebody has entered the kingdom of heaven. This is somebody who's in the family of the king. The issue here is brother-to-brother forgiveness. The forgiveness of a massive debt like this dramatically illustrates something for us. In fact, it's, it's at least illustrating four points that I want to make. Number one, people owe a massive debt because of their sins. Well, let's get personal. You and I owe a massive debt because of our sins. In fact, it it is so huge that you could not possibly pay it. You could spend all eternity burning in the lake of fire and still never pay the debt for all eternity. 
The Bible says we've sinned against a holy God. The Bible says, in fact, all have sinned against a holy God. And as a result of that, the wages of sin is death. And that's not just physical death. The worst part of that is eternal death. Number two, people do not have the ability to pay the massive debt. Just like the, the, the man, the servant of the king in Jesus' parable could not possibly pay the debt. You and I cannot pay the debt. Nobody on planet earth can pay the debt they owe to the king of kings. Number three, God is merciful and patient in withholding his judgment that we deserve. He is very patient. He's very long-suffering. He is merciful. All right? He, he often does not give us what we deserve. Number four, and there's another thing we learn about God, that He is gracious. Not only does He not give us what, he deserve, what we deserve, He gives us what we don't deserve. He, and how did He do that? Well, He provided His Son, Jesus Christ. What did He do? He paid the penalty for your sin. It was so huge, you couldn't pay it, and He paid it in full. Not only that, not only did it say paid in full... Your spiritual bank account said, Christ righteousness. So it goes from a debt that you could never repay to something that is so huge and so wonderful that you'll never fully understand it. (laughs) And in the process, he broke the power of sin. And one day, you will be free from the presence of sin. So Jesus Christ dealt with the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin in your life. Verse 27 is a picture of God who shows grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. Look at verse 27. Because it says, Out of pity for that man, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That is a wonderful picture of God. What He does for every Christian who puts their trust in Him alone. Well, the king felt his heart going out to that man, obviously. It says he took pity on him. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. He deserved to die. He deserved to suffer, but he didn't. And let me ask you this. Did the servant deserve that treatment? Did the servant deserve that kind of treatment? No way. No, but the king, he acted in mercy. He withheld punishment that that servant deserved. The king also showed grace by giving a great gift that was not deserved. He gave him a gift that was not deserved. And that's the way it should be in God's family amongst brothers and sisters. My friend, if if you're in God's family, you have literally millions, millions and millions of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. You have a great family. And... You're a Christian. You're being in his family that you have great responsibility coming with that. And that's the way it needs to be in God's family amongst brothers and sisters. All of a Christian's sins are forgiven and, and it's, it's something that's done forever. So when you trusted in Christ for salvation, for eternal life, God forgave you of your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. And so what this parable reinforces is the Christian's duty to forgive others in the same way that he has forgiven you. This is a truth you can find in several places throughout Scripture. I'll just give you one, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And notice, how are you to forgive? As God in Christ, forgave you. you. You just dwell upon that. Meditate on that this week. How has God forgiven you in Christ? How have you been forgiven? My friend, that is the same way that you are to forgive your brother and sister in Christ after they've sinned against you. In verse 28, the word but shows us a contrast. But contrast the first servant with the second servant. All right, there's, there's more than one servant in this parable. 
The, the two were alike in only one way. The debt each owed gave the creditor power over the debtor's life. In fact, Proverbs says that the borrower is servant to the lender, which is why in your own life you should always strive to not be a slave to a bank or some other lender, if, you, if that's at all possible. But as you look at the, the story here, in every other respect, the situations were exact opposites. The servant had not understood family principles, but he, he is, fortunately, he's, he's about to learn. He will learn. The amount the second servant owed was insignificant in comparison to the first servant. Uh, in fact, the Bible says uh, the second servant owed 100 denarii. Uh, uh, one denarii is a day's wage. Okay, So he owes, in, a, in other words, he owes 100 days wages compared to 200,000 years worth of wages. <laughs> right? So... We're, this is this this is not even in the same ballpark, is it? <clears throat> so rather than imitating the mercy of the king, what does this guy do? Well, the, the first servant, he actually mistreats the second servant. Verse 28, in fact, says, look at verse 28. It says, what does he do? I can just picture, because verse 28 says he comes up to him and he chokes the guy. You can just picture him putting his hands around his neck. Whoa, give me my money. I want 100 days wages. Right? That's what he's doing. He's demanding repayment of the debt. So he's verbally abusing the guy. He's physically abusing the guy. He's not even close to being merciful here. And when you look at verse 29, the actions and the words of the second servant were almost identical to that of the first servant. Boy, that, that must have been a rebuke. Man, this guy's saying the same thing that I said to my master. This servant, notice he, he, he also fell on his knees in humility. So he's got similar actions. He's asking for patience. He's offering to repay the debt. Very similar, isn't it? But the first servant refused to give the second servant a chance to repay the debt. He, he's not showing mercy. The servant's actions did not go unnoticed. I hope you, hope you noticed that. The other servants noticed the difference here. In fact, the other servants recognized the cruelty of the first servant toward the second servant. And this grieved them deeply. In fact, uh, i got a question for you here as we think about this. How deeply do you grieve when you see bitterness and grudges between fellow believers? Are you grieved? Does it affect you like the story here? It doesn't, it doesn't even have to be within your own family. Let's say, let's say somebody who sits on the other side of the, the congregation from you. And, and you see people who are, who, who, whatever reason, there's grudges, there's a barrier, they're not really talking. Does that grieve you? It should. It should. It should bother us. Just like these guys here, these other servants were deeply grieved that this guy's not showing mercy when he had received a lot. Well, such conflict in the family of God causes great sorrow to the Father. That's one of the lessons we can learn here. And so if we share his heart, we're not going to be able to stand by and watch indifferently. It's going to affect us. And in fact, it's not only going to affect us, we're going to do something about it, just like these guys did. These fellow servants did something. In fact, the Bible says they reported... What had happened to their master? They went to the king. And that word reported in your Bible is a very strong verb. It means they explained in complete detail. They didn't leave any details out. They reported the matter to the king. Well, how did the king respond this time? Did he do the same, or was there a difference? Well, notice... It says here, now he's angry. The king's angry, and he summons that first servant who refused to show mercy. This time the king was bringing the unmerciful servant to account for failing to follow his example. And this parable teaches us something about God, doesn't it? It teaches us a lot about God. The father does not want any of his children to be mistreated. Even though they're sinners. Even though they're sinners, God 
does not want any of his children to be mistreated. He doesn't want his children to be harmed. He doesn't want them taken out of his service through the mistreatment of others. I mean, we as sinful parents don't appreciate it when our own children are harming our other children, right? We don't appreciate that. I mean, my little, my little adorable three-year-old gets hurt sometimes by, their, by her siblings that are bigger and more powerful and smarter than she is. I don't appreciate that. And as a father, I come down hard. My children deserve to be punished when they mistreat their younger sibling. And that's appropriate. What do you think God the Father thinks of His children being mistreated by brothers and sisters? He doesn't take kindly to that. Just as this king got angry, so does God the Father. It's a righteous anger. So my friend, you will answer to the Father for your stewardship of the relationships that God has entrusted to you. God puts you in a local church. He's given you relationships, and you're not to mistreat those relationships. You need to keep in view here the Father's zealous oversight of His little ones that we talked about earlier in Matthew chapter 18 here. God the Father is very protective of all of His children. He loves all of them. By the way, that in, even though we are sinners, He still loves us. So this would include mistreatment from other children in the family. Verse 34, we see the king here. He's so angry that he actually canceled his previous order. He refused to release that first servant. And, and, and okay, I forgave you the debt first time, buddy. No more. Okay, because you were unmerciful. I refuse to forgive that debt. The Bible says he imprisoned the servant. He turned him over to the jailers for torture. For torture. The parable reveals the anger of the king and his refusal to tolerate a lack of forgiveness among his family. But I want you to notice there's, there's nothing said here about eternal damnation. Okay? Uh, some have used this uh, as an example of of, of, hey, you can lose your salvation, or this is what happens, you know, uh, as a result of, of our sin and eternal damnation. But that's, that's not the point of this parable. These are family issues, remember? We're talking about people who are true children of God. These are little ones, believers. Family forgiveness restores what was lost, which, by the way, is relational intimacy. It's that fellowship has nothing to do with our position in Christ. The position in Christ doesn't change, but the fellowship does. So we're talking about fellowship, this relational intimacy, this family forgiveness. It can be restored even though it's been lost. Having said that, eternal salvation is something that can never be lost. When you're in the Father's hand, there's no one, nothing can take you out of His hand. Well, this passage in verse 35 ends with a very serious warning. We have a warning of the necessity of forgiveness. Look at verse 35. It says, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I don't know what you think, but I look at that and I see some very sobering words. This is a serious warning. Jesus' closing application is is incredibly serious and sobering. Notice Jesus here says, every one of you. You you can't sit here and say, this is not applying to me. Wrong. This has everything to do with you. Because Jesus says, every one of you. He's not just talking to his apostles. This is us as well. These words bring the focus to individual responsibility. You can't say, well, you know, hey, the other people in the church are not forgiving, so, you know, I'm off the hook. Wrong. Every individual in the church must forgive. Individual responsibility. And so Jesus insisted his servants must be characterized by forgiveness. And so in this parable, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, if you will. It's, 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 it's purposely, hyperbole is where you're, you purposely exaggerate something. 
Jesus, he, he loves doing this sort of thing. He does, he's done it several times already, in fact, in Matthew. You know, for example, he says, uh, I'll give you one example. He, remember when Jesus said that, uh, hate your father and mother? That's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. Jesus didn't literally mean hate your father and mother. What he means is the love for me has to appear as if it has to be so great and so powerful that, that the, your, your natural family love for your brothers and sisters, your mother and father, your wife and children, it, it, it's almost like it's hate. That's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. And Jesus is doing that again here. He's speaking hyperbole about his anger toward an arrogant, rebellious child. And so it's exaggeration. It's the idea is it's to cause us to take the teaching on forgiveness seriously. All right. So he's purposely over, made this overstatement, if you will, so, so we can get the point. So this passage warns about the consequences of failing to forgive others. You must forgive. And it has to be endless. <laughs> That's the point between Peter and Jesus in their conversation. You don't keep track. All right? I know that's hard to do, but that's what Jesus is saying here. And so the point is every Christian has a duty to be forgiving toward others, just as the Father's been forgiving toward you. Well, look at those last words again in verse 35. Because it's, this, this mercy, notice the very last words in verse 35 says, it must come from your heart. This forgiveness and mercy must come from your heart. And that means you must forgive with sincerity. You, you just can't, it's not enough to just say words. Okay, we, we do that sometimes. We don't actually uh, want to forgive. In fact, we're still hating the person and what they've done to us because we've been hurt. But, you know, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I forgive you. <clears throat> yeah, that happens all the time when my with my children. You know, they hurt each other and, you know, we try to, solve those issues with our children, you know, hey, you need to confess your sin, and, and they, you need to forgive, and we need to move on. Well, they might say the words, you know, you know, sorry, I sinned, I did this, would you please forgive me? You can tell they don't actually mean it sometimes. Right? We do that even as adults. And so we got to do it from our hearts. It has to be sincere. It's not through pretension. It's not due to some legalistic requirement. We can't you know, oh, well, Jesus tells me I have to do this, so let's get on with this. No, it's from your heart. I know, as I was studying this, you're probably thinking something similar to what, I'm, what I've been thinking all week long. You've got to be kidding me! I've got to do this, I've got to forgive my heart? You mean I can't just speak the words and that's enough? How am I supposed to do that? I mean... You know, if my husband commits adultery and he's unfaithful to me, you mean I have to forgive him from my heart? Yes. How am I supposed to do that? By the way, I've seen it happen. It, it is possible. All right? It is possible. Forgiveness has to be real, and it is possible. And I'll give you an illustration in just a moment, but we need to remember here this, this theme. Once we've experienced God's merciful forgiveness... It's mandatory that we show that same forgiveness to others. It is mandatory. It is commanded. You don't have an option. And if you're thinking, man, is, is that even possible? How can I possibly forgive somebody else endless amount of times from my heart, sincerely meaning it? Well, it, the only way it's going to happen is because of God's grace. God is going to have to change your heart. If you can't truly say the words of forgiveness, then it's, it's, God has to change your heart. God's grace, by the way, was powerfully displayed in the life of Corey ten Boom. Any of you ever read The Hiding Place? Any of you ever read it? Anyway, if you're not familiar with Corey ten Boom, she's, she's gone to be with the Lord in the 1980s sometime. But uh, She grew up in Europe. Uh, she was imprisoned with her entire family as, as uh, by, the, by the Nazis. When Germany had taken over her country, uh, the, the Nazis put them in a, in a concentration camp because they were giving aid to the Jews. They were helping the Jews to, to get out and, and survive and not be thrown in the concentration camps. So 
we're talking in, you know, World War II time here, okay? Her father and sister ended up dying uh, as a result of the brutal treatment that they had received in the concentration camp, and Corey was there with her sister Betsy when her sister Betsy died. However, God sustained Corey, and uh, she ended up living through and, and was released from the concentration camp at the end of the war, and she ended up traveling the world. And she testified to God's love and God's grace even in her own life, even in the midst of a concentration camp. And here's what she wrote about a remarkable encounter that she had after World War II was ended. This is a true story in her own life. This, this is her words. Here's what she wrote. It was at a church service in Munich, Germany, that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück is a concentration camp. In fact, it was one of the worst. She goes on, she, uh, he was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-filled face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and, and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Him. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. You'll find that in Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place. So, my friend, there's an example of God's grace. Is it possible to forgive from your heart and really mean it and love somebody who is, you, you might feel like they've destroyed your life? It's possible. I've experienced it in my own life. Yes, I'm still working through issues, but it is possible. So, may God give us His grace to forgive from our hearts.